and welcome to One for the Road with me, Sober Dave. Each week I'll be talking to some incredible guests and I hope by hearing each episode they will offer you a valuable source of inspiration and insight. From incredible life stories to a variety of important subjects, all to help you with your quest to change your relationship with alcohol. All of my guests are at different points in their journeys and each of them have powerful and uplifting stories and information to share. I hope you enjoy the show. Don't forget to subscribe and of course, leave a review. My guest today on this special bonus episode of One for the Road is singer-songwriter Sophie B. Hawkins. I got to chat to her recently and she's coming over to the UK to play at the Ford in Camden on the 26th of November to kick off her Free Myself tour, celebrating her new acclaimed sixth album, Free Myself. And it was a pure delight talking with Sophie. Don't forget my new audio book is out now. So if you're like me and you can't even read two lines without forgetting what you're doing, you can download it now on Audible. Now on with the show. I really hope you enjoy it. Hello, Sophie. Welcome to my podcast, One for the Road. We've spoken before. It's lovely to get you back onto my podcast and so my wonderful listeners can hear your story. And by the way, I spoke to um, several people and they're so excited um, about hearing you because they love you. Oh, and I'm sure I love them. Dave, thank you for having me on. I really appreciate it. Bless you. So we've spoken before, but not on my podcast. Um, But it's fascinating to hear um, your relationship with your mum and dad growing up, actually. Um, And I hope you don't mind me asking whether you wouldn't mind sharing that. I'll share as much as I can, you know, and then I have to save the really, really juicy bits about me for my memoir. So what was it like growing up for you? Well, <clears throat> there's there's so many aspects, you know, it's like a prism. On the one hand, um, my mother and father were very rebellious in a good way. They were sort of like these, um, they were very educated people. I grew up in America. I grew up in Manhattan. I was born in New York, New York. And my mother was a writer a novelist, and my father was a lawyer. I don't think he really wanted to be a lawyer, but I think it was the only thing he could really think of because I think if he had his druthers, he would have just sort of been a philosopher, you know, Um, in Greece, standing on the corner chatting with his mates about the newest thoughts and whatever. So they had really open minds in a way. And so, um, so we had the best of the Manhattan world. You know, we had an apartment, that was stable. Uh, I had my brother and sister, Phoebe and Nicholas. We went to school. We had Central Park. Um, but the the thing that was always the shadow side of my growing up was the alcohol. My father was an alcoholic and my mother was an alcoholic. And they didn't see a problem with it. They drank, As far as I remember, my father drank all the time. And he had a phrase. He said, I'd rather die drunk than live one day sober. Wow. And yeah, so he really, he really, at one time I said to him later on in life, if you hadn't have been drinking so much, we would have been closer. And he said, if I hadn't have been drinking, I wouldn't have known you at all. So he really used alcohol to, what's the word, to just stay in life in a way. It was the only way he thought that he could stay in life. 
Um, so that definitely was a shadow side because, you know, when people, two people are alcoholics the, or even one person, if it's your one parent, they're not there to take care of you. They can't possibly be. And I know this as a mother now. I have two children. If I even try to take a CBD gummy, forget it. I'm not able to do the things I need to do for them. And also, most importantly, I'm not able emotionally to be present with all the changes of children and life and the responsibilities. So my father opted out. You know, he had a couple of um, uh, he had a couple of ways that he could kind of skate through life. One of them was my mother was very much an enabler and she used his drinking also to her advantage. Now, this is not to say they're bad people because I'm not trying to say they're bad people. I'm trying to say alcohol was the most important thing mm. to them, it seemed. And my mother seemed to vacillate because she was a writer and she did struggle very much to be a writer. She did publish a book when I was nine years old. And it was amazing that she published a book because in those days you couldn't self-publish and you really had to go through a major publisher and send your manuscript out and get rejected a hundred billion times. And then, so she got, um, she got her book published and then her life started to change for a little bit, but it didn't really manifest a change because again, in my opinion, the drinking, the habits associated, the, the feeling of failure, the feeling of isolation, the feeling, um, the feeling that you can never really break through your own sadness and your own pain that you're just going to cover it up like that pervaded the house. So as dynamically funny as my mother was and is, she, I mean, she's not alive now. She was so creative. If she was speaking to you, Dave, you would say, my God, her very, her very sentences are art. She was so creative in her speaking and she was so talented in her writing. And I really feel that her relationship with alcohol and my father's did her in. And then slowly but surely they lost, you know, their friends were not around anymore after a certain amount of years. My mother's agent died and then my father became her editor. It just became so insular and so toxic. And then when we all got to be about 13, 14, my mother was very triggered because things happened in her childhood when she was um, a kid with her parent. Her father was a big alcoholic. Her mother was a big alcoholic. So when my mother became triggered, she really didn't know. She had no um, muscles to exercise wisdom, you know, to stop herself from reacting. So she became, it seemed almost crazy, like almost it seemed a bit schizophrenic, but what I think now is again, had she had the help. And I was always saying, Dave, I was always saying, I want to go to therapy. We need to do an intervention. We need a family intervention. See, Dave, by the way, you can interrupt me if I'm talking too much. Am I? Not at all, Sophie. Oh, okay. Because when I was, I think I was in first grade or second grade, probably second grade because we moved to a different apartment. I remember being in my room and thinking the ship is going down and I'm not going to go down with it. I was absolutely positive that their alcoholism was destroying everyone's life. And I was young to know that. And I had nobody telling me that because again, everyone around me was drinking. My my mother's whole family were drinkers and, and, and drug users. So it just came from this sort of spiritual connection that I thought, you know, and also probably I looked at my friends and I assessed, you know, which parents were drinkers, which parents were abusers and which parents were really um, 
focusing on life and being present and able to help their children and be happy. So I compare, I, you know, I took notes and I decided I wanted to be with the ones who were spiritually more free and not drinking. Although I was then, I said in second grade, so I was six or seven because I was born in November. It took me till I was 14 years old to actually stop drinking. We were given pot brownies when, when we were really young. I think I was in first grade and that didn't turn us into addicts, but it certainly made the boundaries completely blurry. I remember stealing my mother's joints when I was in fourth grade. I remember it was okay. It was okay that we drank. It was okay that we smoked pot. It was okay that we scored weed. It was okay that we did quaaludes, cocaine, you name it. And um, so as much as I had that spiritual sense that I didn't want to be like them, I also fell into the trap of experimenting and exploring to the greatest degree And then I hit my bottom when I was 14 and I said, I'm not doing this anymore. And then I didn't. That's fascinating, Sophie, because in my experience, a lot of people start when they're 14. So you starting early gave you the opportunity really to make up your own mind what you wanted to do. So you had enough by 14. Yes. Well, it's true. I think I though in a way I was more extreme than my parents. Like they had this life from their old days, you know, their generation. They could figure out, you know, rent control department, all these stop gaps so that they can keep drinking and, and live this life. They didn't go, they didn't push themselves in too much. So they weren't challenged. But for me, I was way more extreme. I wanted to do so much more. Mm. Um, I, I was, you know, growing up listening to David Bowie and the Beatles and the Stones and, and Joan Baez and everybody. And I, I wanted to, to find some self expression in a way. I was luckier that I was able to go to an extreme and try everything by the time I was 14. And if I hadn't stopped, and these are the stories for the memoir, I would not be here. That's what I mean. My parents had a safer way to keep drinking and keep sort of numb. And for me, there was nothing safe. I wasn't, I never gravitated towards safety. I wanted to be ripped open and find my path. And I, in a way, I used drugs and alcohol to do that. And then it became clear to me that I wouldn't, as I said, be around if I kept going on that path. Mm. And when you were 14, tell me what happened then. Well, I said to my Aunt Linda, I want to play African drums. Which is random, isn't it, Sophie? I mean, where did that come from? I don't know. And I, <laughs> I, I, so funny, too, because my Aunt Linda was awesome. She was a masseuse on Paul Simon's tour. She, you know, had her relationship with drugs and alcohol as well. She was probably stoned out of her mind when I said it to her, but she was, <laughs> she was also a spiritual seeker. She was in a, a school of enlightenment and everything. She was really a sixties woman. I mean, look at my aunt Linda was married to a Roosevelt, the grandson of Teddy Roosevelt. She divorced him and said, the hell with this. She went to Esalen. She went to Chile and she just gave everything up and she, and, and she had been in college and a painter, she gave everything up to be on this spiritual path. And that, of course, in the 60s, you can imagine the amount of drugs, sex, and alcohol, mm. you know, intertwined with the spiritual path in Bolivia, Esalen, all that jazz. So that's the woman. I, but I was smart to ask her because she turned to me and she said, with a smile on her face, I know an African drum teacher. And I was shocked <laughs> because, Dave, 
I hadn't even been able to get to a music lesson. My parents were so out of it that they never heard me saying, I want to play drums. I want to play piano. Why are we not doing anything? They never heard it. So we never did anything. Then suddenly my Aunt Linda, she heard it. And she looked at me and said, I know. So she got me in touch with this guy named Gordy, who was literally was an African drum teacher who played with Babatunde Olatunji, who was a really famous 60s um, political figure, African drummer who came to America and made lots of great records. And um, this guy lived with Olatunji and he was in his band. And so he started to teach me African drums. Um, and then it was really clear to me how much work I had to do. So now I've made this great statement, but I had no idea how much work it was going to be to become a musician. So there's no way I could have been drinking at that point. I had to stop. And I also wonder where you, like you say, you wouldn't be here if you had a carrot on drink, but your music career as well. You know, so where, how did that kick off then your music career after the drumming? What, what was the first point? I love the question because when I was drum at doing the African drums and then my drum teacher pushed me to do vibraphone and marimba and I became really into jazz and Milt Jackson was my idol and all I wanted to be was a jazz musician. And Babatunde Olatunji said to me one day, because I moved into their apartment in the Ansonia, he said, Sophie, one day I'm going to open the Village Voice and you're going to be playing every instrument in your own band. And I thought to myself, yeah, I am going to be doing that. But it was great to hear him articulate it. So then I went to Manhattan School of Music for percussion, which Gordy really pushed me and said I could do it, even though I had no faith that I could do it, but I did do it. It was the only school I applied to. And um, I got in, thank God. I'm, my parents did not even know I applied there. They didn't even know I was accepted. So I got in there. I went for, I think, two, I almost graduated. But then, I went to see Omar Hakim, who was my then idol as, as a drummer. I went to see Omar Hakim playing in Weather Report at the Beacon Theater. And after I saw Omar, I went to Central Park and I sat on a rock and said, I will never, to be honest with myself, I will never be the drummer I want to be. I will never be Omar Hakim. There's no amount of practicing that can get me there. So I'm just going to pursue songwriting because I love songs. I love writing. I love books. And that's what I'm going to do. So that from that moment on, I would, in the practice room, I would start writing songs instead of practicing my drums. And it took, you know, like I would play drums in bands around Manhattan and they would let me sing one of my songs or two of my songs. And they would apologize for my singing voice. And then eventually I had so many songs that I was quote-unquote discovered when I was working as a coat check. I mean, that's a good story if you want to hear it. Yeah, let's go. Okay, so I had this, so I would, I went, did demos anywhere I could, and again, these are the things, the details I have to put in my memoir, because it was really interesting how New York, in a way, conspired to help me. The very city, the very people. So I made demos everywhere, anytime, and I had a cassette of about however many demos I could fit on the cassette. And I was working as a coat check in a restaurant called Orso in the theater district. And a man came in and his name was Mark Cohen, who later did Walking in Memphis. He's a great artist. He said, you have a beautiful speaking voice. I bet you're a singer. And I said, I'm a horrible singer, but I have all these songs. And I gave him my demo tape. I don't know if he listened to my demo tape, but he left it on a desk in a jingle studio called JSM in Manhattan. This was the late 80s, almost the 90s. He left my demo tape and a guy named Ralph Shuckett just picked it up. It said, Sophie was my phone number, 212 787 
He listened to it on his way back to Brooklyn on the subway. And he called me up and he said, you should be making records. So I went to his house in Brooklyn in Carroll Gardens with a kitchen knife in my pocket because I thought he might be a rapist. <laughs> and he, yeah. And he really meant it. He, he said, these demos are great. Damn, I wish I was your lover. Mysteries, we understand. All California, here I come. They were the whole first record and many others were on those tapes. And he said, you just need to clean this up a little bit and I'm going to get you a record deal. Well, he not only got me a record deal, he had seven record labels bidding on me within nine months. But that, and that was, but, but for years, I just want to let the audience know, for years, I couldn't get arrested. I would meet with publishers. I would play them my songs. And they thought I was a lunatic. Nobody would sign me. But this one moment happened. And a lot had to do with timing, I think. Serendipity, Sophie, isn't it? It's, right. it's the right place at the right time. Yes. 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 And, you know, but, you know, but back to the being sober, I was by no means sober in my habits, in my boundaries, in my ways of seeing life. I was struggling to be, uh, to keep it together, to, to be able to show up. And I did. And I got, I took those meetings, but it was death defying, you know? And like I said, I didn't have any model of parents who really showed up. Mm. You know, it's not to say my father didn't work. Like, if my sister heard this interview, she would have a totally different viewpoint. And that has to be said. She, you know, he did work, but he stopped working. Actually, around when I was 14, he stopped going to the office. So the the thing is, I didn't have a model for continuing, for succeeding, for wanting something and getting it, for consistency, for any for anything like that. So I pushed myself so much. Do you know the record company made jokes about me because Ralph Shuckett gave me his clothes to wear to the interview. He said, you can't show up in the same T-shirt. He said, you've been wearing the same T-shirt and jeans since I've known you for the nine months that we've been working together. And I said, yeah, but I think that's kind of cool. It's like my uniform. And he <laughs> said, yeah, but you should dress it up. So he gave me his shirts for the meeting. But what what was it like back then? Like if you wasn't drinking in that, what, what was the music industry like? It was scary. It was turning very corporate. So my meetings were like with all these, you know, giant men, like literally Donnie Einer was, was a giant football playing type of corporate guy. And we'd sit around these ginormous tables in these restaurants that were huge with high ceilings and dim lights. And all these executives were just looking at me and asking me questions about my music. And I knew that I couldn't really say anything truthful or meaningful. So it was just like how I, it was like, it was like um, you, you pluck up somebody who's a completely indigenous human um, on the earth with their art and you put them in in the most corporate atmosphere and you say you know dance do your thing and I did my thing as much as I could and luckily people were impressed and they got I, I gave them I knew what I was doing to a great extent I gave them the security that if they signed me and believed in me and put money into me that I would go out and promote the hell out of my music Mm. And I did. I've always done that. I've never, you know, if I make one mistake and miss one thing, I beat myself up to no end. And it's because I have such a, I have such a bad feeling about myself from being a child and having the parents who were so irresponsible and who let everything go. And that there's a deep, deep fear that I, and probably Dave, why I pushed myself so much Mm. It's because I had such a 
fear of failure, such a sense that I was a loser because I loved my parents. I identified with them. And it was so hard to break out of that and become my own successful person. It's really hard, isn't it? Like when you say it like that, it's like our early years are so important, aren't they? And and they can go on to affect you the rest of your life, can't they? I've just realized that like with my own children, I have a teenager now and sometimes I ride him too hard. I push him too hard. And I suddenly realized the other night, it's because I feel that I'm not enough. And I push him the same way as if he's me. And then I realized, Sophie, you better be careful with your child because he will start to feel that he's not enough. And that's only coming from his mom. And his mom, I'm his only parent. So then I kind of really adjusted my course to to try to make it, you know, the pushing has to come from a sense of belief in him. But you can go too far with these kids nowadays because we come from the hippie 60s or whatever and we could be afraid that they won't make it but they will make it and it's their world and anyway so yes I have to constantly make the adjustment because I'm always feeling like I'm just a hair's breadth away from complete failure yeah I get that we're the same age actually I, I found that out when we last spoke that you actually you're younger so I'm not talking to you anymore but <laughs> <laughs> yeah but look, listen, and if ever I say Sophie B. Hawkins, everyone goes, damn. Yeah. I wish I was your love. Sorry about that. But <laughs> it was that, what, you know, did that, because did that get to number five in the US charts, that, that song? Yeah, it was really huge. Yeah, that, did that, I mean, so that, that changed your life massively, it did. didn't it? It did. It did. It did. It was gradual, though. As, as, as Ernest Hemingway says, it was gradually but suddenly. It took a lot of work even to get the demo of demo, I Wish I Was Your Lover to the point where it really sounded like it did on the album. And I never did feel that it was as good as it could be. But however, now I do feel. It oh, was my just, God. It's, it's an anthem. You know, like yeah, yeah, it's always yeah, it on is. the playlist. If you've got a road trip and then it comes on and the windows are down and you're singing out loud. Do you know what I mean? I know. It is. It is. It is really, truly. I it's hard to really ingest, to digest when you do something like that, because it seems to come from God. Like, I remember the emotions that triggered the writing of the song. I remember writing the song. I remember being at the piano. I remember that day. I remember the summer. I remember everything about it. But it's still hard to conceive mm. that you that a person can allow something in. But this is a great thing, I think I'm about to say, that you can allow something in. And let it take its course, and it can literally change your life. Mm. And that's the problem with alcohol and and addictions is that you don't really believe things are going to get good. So you have that plan B, which is a drink or whatever. The thing is, you have to let go and take the risk. And so when I said I was extreme, there's a good side to that, which is I'm willing to take the risk. And I said, I wanted to be broken open. And first I used the only tools I had, which were alcohol and drugs and sex. But then I realized those tools were going to kill me. So I had to, I had to open up to other things. And that's the point. And when I opened up to songwriting, boy, that was a moment from God. All these things are spiritual. And that's why I like the program AA. And I did spend a lot of time in the rooms all Mm -hmm. through my career because it's a really good 
checkpoint to hear people's story and to realize that we can't really do it alone. Even if we are physically alone, even if there's no one around, there is always the presence of our higher power, whether you want to call it God or angels or just a higher consciousness, whatever you want to call it. I know it's there. I know it's there because it, it, I tap into it often. I agree, Sophie, and and we're lucky these days that there are so many other forms of community as well. You know, there's a big social media presence now. There's lots of groups you can join. There's a there's a lot more education out there now as well. And you know, for your son growing up, um, you know, it's about more knowledge now and reaching out for community, so you don't feel isolated because we do in our addictions and. When you're trying to get away from addictions, the last thing you need to do is feel alone again. So whatever serves you, whether it's AA or online communities, whatever, is so good. Connection. Yes, it's true. And the thing that was so sad about my mother, because she really, she really was a great artist, is that she was isolated. And she never got to have that, those moments of opening. And a lot of it was her upbringing and her generation. So as much as the alcohol clouded my life, it gave me this insight into the possibility of humanity and to go the other direction, the possibility of humans. Like my mother was an unhappy writer. And I always said, I'm going to be a happy artist. If I'm going to be an artist, I'm going to be happy because there's no use in doing the best thing in the world, which is creating and being unhappy. Mm. And same thing with alcohol. You know, if you are drinking and you're unhappy and depressed, well, it's you're rest assured that the alcohol is contributing to the depression and the unhappiness. So the best thing to do is stop that first. Absolutely. And see what happens. Take it day by day. Yeah. And everything will get better if you cut it out. But it's having the mindset to do it. You know, and it's these conversations we're having now that can be inspirational. And I also know, Sophie, you're on a bit of a time limit today, but um, I wanted to say that I'm coming to see you at the end of November at the Forge in Camden. And it's the 26th of November, isn't it? Do you want to talk about that before we go? Yeah, I'm so glad you mentioned it. I have a big smile on my face. First of all, I don't know if your audience knows, I lived in Hempstead, right? near the Heath, 11 New End for years. And I made my second record in London. So basically this is coming home for me. And I haven't been to, to London as as, a, as an artist in so long. And I'm very excited about this show. It's the first show and it represents this new part of my life, what I call the third act. And I'm promoting a new record called Free Myself, which I think goes very well with our talk. Mm. So Free Myself is a record. Is a, All these songs are about, you know, finding even another layer of freedom in relationships and within myself um, and, and in relationships with people in the audience after COVID, after all these things we're talking about. So I'll be promoting that at The Forge, which I hear is an amazing venue, by the way in Camden and it will be the hopefully the first of many shows in London because I feel as though I'm back like it took so long to get here where you know I had that great moment in the music business moment of years of success and then and but all the way it was fighting you know don't think that it wasn't for one second always fighting for each little crumb step you take and then I, for the last 10 years, I've been really, really 
struggling to get my music out. And I finally found the support in the way. And I also was able to raise my kids. And then we all went through COVID and blah, blah, blah. So here I am. It's like I'm back, but I'm back with so much more wisdom and humor and kind of self-love and also love for what I'm doing. Do you know what I love? And it kind of gave me goosebumps because we're, we're the same age is what you said, the third act. Because we go through phases, don't we, in life, you know, young, middle age, then we get start to get a bit older and then we start to wonder what we're doing and whatever. And now you're relaunching your career. I think it's fantastic. And I really resonated with what you said there. So I'm going to think about that later. And people, people who are our age and are in their third act must realize that this is the last act. And if you, you got to start doing what you really need to do with your life. Because in a way, you know, who's watching at this point? And that's also another great thing. Nobody really cares but us what we're doing at this time in our life. So we better do what we've always wanted to do. We better because yeah. this is our last chance in this lifetime. Oh, Sophie, it's been a real, real joy. Um, I will put the links in the show notes um, for tickets to the event. Uh, I'm going to come and see you for sure. I can't wait. Hopefully I'll get to meet you. Of course you will. I'll give you a big hug. How about that? Please, I'd love if you give me a big hug. And and I, for all the other people who are coming, I want them to know I'll be selling merchandise and then I sign people's stuff. People always have things. That, yeah, I haven't been there in 15 years. They go, I've had this for 15 years, waiting for you to come and sign it. So I will be doing a merch table. I will be signing. I will love to see you and hug you. And it, it's a, just a really wonderful homecoming. Yeah, brilliant. All right, I can't wait to see you, and I'm really grateful for the time today. Thank you, Sophie. Have a brilliant day. You do. Thanks, Sophie. Bye. Bye. I really hope you enjoyed the show today. Don't forget to subscribe and leave a review. For further support, you can buy my book, One for the Road, on Amazon, and you can also follow me on Instagram, at SoberDave. Please remember to join me for next week's episode. Until then, thanks for listening and have a great week.